Gracious God and Father, you've promised that your holy word, which goes forth from your mouth, will not return to you empty, but it will accomplish what you desire. It will succeed in the matter for which you have sent it. May your word have its way, we pray, in every heart this day, through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Please be seated. So it's been called the worst blunder in college football history. On January 1st, 1929, the University of California Golden Bears were playing the Georgia Tech Yellow Jackets in the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, California. And midway through the second quarter, Roy Regals, a California player, picked up a Georgia Tech fumble Although Regals was just 30 yards away from the Yellow Jackets end zone, he was disoriented enough to run 69 yards the wrong direction. A teammate finally caught up with him at California's three-yard line, trying to turn him around. But Regals was immediately hit by a wave of Georgia Tech players who tackled him back to the one-yard line. The Golden Bears chose to punt rather than to risk a play so close to their own end zone, but Georgia Tech blocked the punt for a safety, giving Georgia a two to nothing lead. Roy Regals was so emotionally upset by what he had done that he left the field and would refused to go back out and play the rest of the game. And back in those days, I'm told that players often played both sides of the ball. He played offense and defense, both. But the coach ordered him back out. And it turns out, Regals had a brilliant second half of the game, but few remember that. <laughs> Unfortunately, the two-point safety proved to be the difference in the game as Georgia Tech went on to win 8-7. to seven. And Roy Regals became known ever after as Wrong Way Regals. Now, thankfully, for many of us, our mistakes are not that public. But our mistakes may be just as emotionally upsetting, if not more. Like Roy Regals, all of us, demonstrate at times a poor sense of direction. The scripture says, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way, the wrong direction. And there are no exceptions to that. And St. Paul adds to that indictment when he says, there is no one righteous, no, not one. All have turned aside. All of us go the opposite direction from God. That's the way we're born. We are all born directionally challenged. And not only do we have a poor sense of direction when it comes to God's ways, but we actively oppose God's ways. We'll even go that far to stand in the way of the Lord. When our Lord revealed to his disciples how he was going to die, that he was going to the cross, what did Peter do? Peter rebuked the Lord. He stood in his path. And Jesus then rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. 
you're going to the direction of men, not the direction of God. Peter thought he was being helpful, but it turned out he was playing for the wrong team. I direct your attention to our text for this morning on page eight of your bulletin. We read in verse one, John chapter two, on the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples, and when the wine ran out, I'm told that weddings in those days could go on for several days, for several days. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now that's Roman numeral one, part A in your sermon outline on page nine of your bulletin. Mary's humility. Notice she doesn't make a request. She just states the need. And to me, that's a very humble way to approach the Lord. Now, he invites us to make requests, but Mary won't do that. She'll just state the need. But notice Christ's response in verse four. And Jesus said to her, woman, woman. I've read that we have absolutely no examples throughout ancient Greek literature and throughout Hebrew literature of any son ever referring to his mother by the term woman. It just doesn't happen. Jesus alone does that. And this is not the only place he does it. He does it toward the end of the gospel when he's on the cross speaking to his mother. Woman, behold your son. More about that shortly. Point one, lowercase a, the term reflects not disrespect but distance. It reflects distance. This is how a man would refer to a female stranger, woman. Now three times she's called the mother of Jesus in the first five verses, I believe. She's called the mother of Jesus, but Jesus refers to her by a term which suggests there's no relationship at all. Letter B, Jesus will not let kinship, he will not let kinship affect the pattern of his ministry. You see, before he is the son of Mary, he is the son of God. First and foremost, he's the son of God. The purpose of his coming into the world, his passion, his suffering, death, and resurrection, it's designed to express his unity with the Father, not with his mother, or his adoptive father, or his siblings. It's the unity with the Father that he will demonstrate by faithfully going to the cross. That's his Father's will. So let her see the new family of God, or we could say the new Israel of God, 
will be apart from flesh and blood. Remember at the cross, he, he looks at his mother and he says, woman, behold your son, the disciple John, as best we know. That was John standing there. He didn't turn the care of his mother over to his own siblings. By this time, they were likely unbelievers still. Later they would believe. Jesus said, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. You know, those of us who tend to make idols out of, our, out of our children should hear that. The new family of God will be apart from flesh and blood. And letter D, this is a radical reorienting, redirecting of one's ultimate loyalty one's ultimate loyalty. His mother, at this point in the ministry of Jesus, his mother does not understand the direction of his ministry, that he's going to the cross. By the way, no one understands it. I mean, it's not a slight to Mary. <laughs> no one understands the direction of his ministry. We're all directionally challenged when it comes to the ultimate fate of Jesus at this point in the gospel. But he's going to the cross because his ultimate loyalty is not to her, but to his heavenly Father. And three, three years ago when this reading came up, I, I focused instead on Mary's persistent faith and how I think it's a lesson for all of us that even when Jesus seems to treat her rudely, she still hopes in his goodness. And, and, and I think it's very similar to the Canaanite woman in the Gospels where she makes a request of Jesus regarding her daughter and Jesus just rebuffs her and rebuffs her and rebuffs her. But she just keeps coming and keeps coming and keeps coming. And he relents, you know. See, that's Mary in this situation. And, and I think it's the way that, in this sense, she is a model for all of us. We don't give up on the Lord because he doesn't give up on us, even though he seems to at times. He seems to. So point number two, my hour has not yet come. Hour refers to the hour of his passion, his suffering, death, and resurrection. You know, Jesus says in John 12, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. In John 17, he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your son may glorify you. It has to do with the cross. That's the hour. That's the destiny of Jesus. That's his time for glorification. 
And both of these terms, woman and hour, are, are used with respect not only to this lesson for this morning, but they're used with respect to the crucifixion. The lesson today points to the crucifixion by employing those words. Mary is concerned about wine. Jesus redirects her to his destiny. He redirects her to his cross. And that redirects Mary's speech. It redirects her speech. She says, do whatever he tells you, okay? In other words, she says to, to the servants, don't follow my direction. I'm directionally challenged for all I know. <laughs> follow his direction, whatever he tells you do. Follow him, follow his direction. Letter C, Cana points to the cross and resurrection. It points to the cross and resurrection. The use of the word woman, the use of the term hour. These are foreshadows of the cross. And all the signs in John's gospel point to the death and resurrection of our Lord. Now a, a, a sign is something that points beyond itself to something greater. That's what this lesson does. It points to the greater work of the Lord. <clears throat> All the signs do that. The multiplication of the loaves and so on throughout John's gospel, they point to his destiny. So Roman numeral two, what does this mean for us? Well, letter A, we perceive his glory. We perceive his glory. Notice, notice verses 10 and 11 in the gospel. And he, this is the steward of the feast, the master of the feast, <clears throat> said to him, he said to the groom, the groom gets all the credit, right? Everyone else serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you, you're different. You've kept the good wine until now. The groom gets the credit, but the real bridegroom is Jesus. And the real bride is the church, all believers in Christ. Jesus is doing something new, something very different. Unlike what anyone else would do. This is, this is breaking new ground. You're not like everyone else. Those words really describe Jesus. The good wine comes later. And we alone perceive his glory, verse 11, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. We perceive the glory in this, not only is wine the end product of the water, miraculously, but it foreshadows something greater, the passion of our Lord. It points ahead to that, the foreshadowing of his hour. The disciples get that. I don't think anyone else at the feast understands that. No one else sees it. 
The servants know what happened, but we don't read that they believe in him. We're not told they perceive the glory of the Lord in this. But the disciples do. The disciples alone perceive his glory. And let her be, we, the disciples, believe into him. That little preposition, in him, at the very end of the lesson, literally in the Greek, it's into, into him, which is a very strange way of speaking. I don't know of anyone else whom we believe into, but we believe into Jesus. And this is the way throughout John's gospel and, and elsewhere in the New Testament, we're described as believing into, we're baptized into, we're relocated into him. We're no longer autonomous, independent creatures. We're no longer apart from Christ. We are a part of Christ. We're a part of him. We've been relocated into him, into his values, into his priorities. They now govern the conscience. We've been redefined by him. If he's the shepherd, we're the sheep. If he's the vine, we're the branches. If he's the bread of life, we are those who consume him. We're redefined with respect to him and who he is and what he does. And number one, we entrust ourselves to him. We give ourselves over to him freely as a result of his grace the transformation that he brings about in us, we entrust ourselves to him. Mary's doing that in the lesson for today. She entrusts herself to do whatever he says. He knows. Follow him. Point number two, I no longer trust my own sense of direction. I no longer trust my own compass because I'm directionally challenged. I'll go my own way at the drop of a hat, at the least possible moment. I, I won't even suspect what's going to happen next, and I'll go my own way. This is why St. Paul wrote in Romans 12, he said, by the mercies of God, meaning by the gospel, by the passion, death, resurrection of Jesus, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. Do not be conformed to this world. To be conformed to the world, Paul writes, is to be directionless with respect to God and his word. Rudderless. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that by testing you may discern the will of God, the direction that God wants you to go. Why? It's by the mercies of God that you will discern the, the will of God, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Romans 12, 2. The gospel does that. The passion, death, and resurrection redirects our lives God's direction. Point number three, another way to say it, do whatever he tells you. 
you know, what he tells us may seem strange. You know, love, love your enemies. <laughs> you know, love your enemies, those people who've hurt you deeply and who are unrepentant about it, right? Love your enemies. Why? Because we were enemies of God and he loved us. And that makes all the difference. Forgive your offender. Why should I do that? They haven't changed. Well, because we were offenders of God and God forgave us before we made any move at all. You see, that's unconditional love. That's direction. That's direction for your life. Letter C, Christ crucified and risen is our, there's lots of things you could say, he's our north star, he's our, our true north, he's our GPS <laughs> guidance, he's our direction. Christ crucified and risen is our direction throughout life. This is why Paul writes in Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives. Okay, well, good. How, how am I supposed to do that? Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. There's the enablement. It's the second half of that verse that gives you the key to fulfilling the first half. This is why Paul's letters, you know, they, they, they begin, you know, when, when Paul preaches to non-Christians, he leads with the law, the accusation of God, and then he follows it up with the gospel, the forgiveness of God, the comfort of God. But when he writes to Christians in the New Testament, he leads with the gospel. Why? Because they've been taught the gospel, they've heard the gospel, they need to be reminded of the gospel because in the second half of each epistle, he's gonna to get to the law, he's gonna to get to the things that we should be doing. And we cannot possibly do them unless we hear again of what God has done for us. That's how it works. This is why Jesus says in John 13 to his disciples, love one another, yeah, as I have loved you. That's the key. There's the power to do the former, you see. His self-sacrifice enables us to live selflessly. His self-sacrifice determines how we live together, how we get along together, how we reconcile with one another. That is to say, the Christian life begins at the cross, it continues at the cross, and it never leaves the cross. Why? Because the cross reveals the persistent love of God for people like us who have a habit of going our own way apart from him. And truth be known, to this very day, we're liable to go our own way apart from him. But the cross remains. The cross remains. Christ remains crucified for you and for me. God remains committed to you and to me. And the more you believe in God's persistent love for you, the more you are enabled to love others. The more you believe in his repeated forgiveness of you, the more you're able to forgive others. 
This good news does not simply save you in the hereafter. This good news provides direction for life here and now. And it is this direction, this gospel-enabled direction, this is what directionally challenged people need. In Jesus' name, amen.